0: Um, so, yesterday, I got to give the the official uh, the official uh, introduction to our speaker to uh, Dr. Buznitz and uh, I want to do just something a little bit different uh, today. One of the things that I so appreciate about him and about his ministry is that he is just an unassuming man he 's a very humble man. Um, little-known fact uh, about his family two of them Uh, a few years ago uh, his dad preached in this pulpit uh, when I was doing my uh, my sabbatical and so we have both uh, his dad's signature and now Nate's signature right in here where we keep our our speaker uh, signatures so uh, and the second little-known fact and you can pray for their family this year all of their kids are teenagers so uh, we're, we're thankful for that and we'll we'll fast and pray for you um But would you please give a warm welcome to Nathan Buznitz. Well, thank you, Steve, and uh, really appreciate your kindness. And there we go. And do pray for us. We do have four teenagers. Um, It's actually really a lot of fun, and we're so grateful for the family that the Lord's given us and for our four children. Having teenagers is a bit like standing in line at a really scary roller coaster where you're watching people get on and they they put on some sort of safety harness and then they're whisked away and you kind of anticipate what the ups and downs and the loops and everything else is going to entail. But when they get off, everybody still seems to be smiling. So we... uh, We've watched those who are kind of ahead of us in the parenting stage get through the teenage years, and they've noted how wonderful it is, and we are experiencing that ourselves. And really, again, just so grateful for what the Lord has allowed us to enjoy as a family. Uh, it is a great privilege for me to be here with you this morning, and uh, I'm so grateful to Steve for letting me come to the Steadfast Conference. And, well, we'll see if I can get my computer to cooperate with me this morning, but so grateful to Steve to let me come to the Steadfast Conference and to get to spend time with all of you who were there One of the highlights for me from yesterday was hearing an incredible message on Revelation chapter 2, and if you weren't at the Steadfast Conference, I'd encourage you to listen to it. Pastor Steve preached a message on the church at Smyrna, the letter to the church at Smyrna, and just did a really, really great job. I especially appreciated the way in which he incorporated church history into his Message the life and legacy of Polycarp, and so was just so grateful for that. All right, well, I'm going to do this, even if it's awkward, just to get it to recognize my face. Um, (laughs) Thanks for bearing with me. I, I will confess, I I have some eye issues, and so I've been using a uh, a tablet to preach from because it makes it easier for me to be able to make the text a little larger. So. Uh, Thanks for bearing with me on that, and it's, it's working now. So with all of that out of the way, now we can officially start. I said this in the Sunday School Hour, but it is a real joy for my wife, Beth, and I to get to be with you here at Grace Bible Church. We are so grateful for like-minded churches throughout the state of California. I was just back in Georgia at the G3 conference and was letting them all know that there are Christians on the left coast. Uh, we, we are here, the remnant, and uh, just what a joy it is to get to spend time with you this morning. Thinking about teenagers, Steve, you gave me the perfect segue. I remember back before our kids were teenagers, back when they were little, teaching them, singing to them, uh, reciting to them nursery rhymes and lullabies and sort of the, the songs that we sing to little children, even infants, maybe when we're rocking them to sleep, and it was a few years ago, as I was thinking through some of those nursery rhymes and some of those well-known sort of classic children's songs, that I actually stopped to think about the lyrics. And it's, it's pretty amazing, some of the songs that we sing to our children, these dear ones that we love. I mean, Rockabye Baby, right? In the treetops, when the wind blows, the cradle will rock, when the bough breaks, the cradle will fall, and down will come baby, cradle and all. I, what is what is it that we're singing to our children? This is a little bit disturbing when we actually stop and, and think about the lyrics. Uh, even that, I know it doesn't rain much in California, but when it does, you know, the, it's raining, it's pouring, the old man is snoring, he bumped his head or hit his head and went to bed and either didn't or couldn't get up in the morning, and we're just kind of like, what is going on in this song, and what does that have to do with the fact that it's raining outside? I know it's not as maybe well-known, but London Bridge is falling down. This is like some national disaster, and we're celebrating it as a kid's song, and even the well-known Ring Around the Rosie, pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. It they think that that song actually reflects the black death, the bubonic plague. It's kind of like, whoa, what, again, what, what is going on in the lyrics of these children's songs? Even in the church, and I'm assuming that these songs maybe aren't part of your Sunday school program here. Maybe they are. They're songs that I remember from my days growing up in Sunday school, but... Uh. The greatest nat- the greatest natural disaster that ever occurred on the planet, right, is the flood. Every living land creature on earth perished, except for two of each animal and eight human beings, and we turn it into a song, you know, God told Noah to build him an archie-archie. Uh, I don't know if you know that song, but... God told Noah to build him an arky arky, and he was supposed to build it out of gopher barky barky. And it just feels like maybe we're not recognizing the event that this song is recounting with the respect that it deserves. Even Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. This is a a massive war. And it represents, of course, a great triumph, but it's kind of a violent song with the walls falling down, and usually when my kids sang that, they all fell down all over the room, right? But the most sobering of all Sunday school songs, and in fact, the title for our message this morning is The Most Sobering of Sunday School Songs, I would contend that the most sobering of all of them not the devil can sit on a tack. Uh, you know, no, the most sobering of all Sunday school songs is the wise man built his house upon the rock. And you know that song, right? The wise man built his house upon the rock, and you, you can do the hand motions and the whole thing. Um, and then the, the, the next verse is the foolish man, he built his house upon the sand. And the rains came tumbling down. The rains came down, flood came up, rain came down, flood came up. Very clever lyrics. The rain came down, the flood came up, and the house on the sand went. In our house, it was splat. I I think there's different variations of it. Crash, whatever it might be. That song is a sobering song because of the truth from God's Word that it represents. And that truth actually comes from our text for today, which is Matthew chapter 7, which is the final chapter of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, which is the greatest sermon ever preached. And that was our Lord's closing illustration a wise man who built his house on a rock, and a foolish man who built his house on sand. And this morning we're going to talk a little bit about why that is the most sobering of Sunday school songs, the song that represents that illustration because of what the illustration itself represents. It was uh, 280 years ago, actually this year, 280 years ago, That Jonathan Edwards preached the most famous sermon ever preached on American soil. It was actually before the United States was the United States, it was still just colonial America. And Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon. He actually preached that sermon in Enfield, Connecticut. His church was in Northampton, Massachusetts, which means he preached the most famous sermon ever preached as a guest preacher. He was a guest preacher that Sunday in July of 1741 when he preached a sermon that's so well known, it actually shows up in American literature textbooks. Even when I went to public high school, we read a portion of that sermon. You know what sermon it is. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, the most famous sermon ever preached on American soil, and often critics of that have kind of turned it into more of God in the Hands of an Angry Puritan. That's the way that it's often presented because it was such a dramatic and really very pointed, pointed message, sobering message. In that message, Jonathan Edwards was confronting the hypocrisy and the nominal Christianity of many in that congregation. In Puritan New England, it had become common for people to profess to be Christian, to say they were Christian. They grew up Christian. Everyone they knew was Christian. Their whole life experience had, quote-unquote, been Christian, and yet they had never truly given their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. They were unconverted, albeit professing believers. And so it's not so much God in the hands of an angry Puritan. It really is a Puritan who was desperate, a preacher who was desperate that his congregation hear and understand the gospel and be confronted with the self-righteous apathy of their own religiosity. He said things in that sermon, though, that are quite provocative. Things where he compared the congregation to detestable insects, like a spider hanging above the flames of hell, and that it's nothing but God's hand that prevents you from falling into hell this very moment. He warned his congregation that it was only the hand of God that prevented them from entering eternity, even that morning that they had been allowed by his grace to sit in church and to hear the preaching of the word and he confronted them with the reality that if they did not turn to christ their professing religion their self-righteous works their external goodness would it would warrant them nothing but condemnation and ultimately Eternal judgment. Well, "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God" is the most famous sermon ever preached on American soil, but it is not too different than the most sermon, the most famous sermon ever preached, the greatest sermon ever preached, which is the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, this morning, right before we came out, we were praying with the elders, and I made the comment that the message this morning is the greatest sermon ever preached. But that's not my sermon. This, I mean, we didn't even get off to a good start this morning. So this is not the greatest sermon ever preached, but it's about the greatest sermon ever preached. The greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what was the theme of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, much like sinners in the hands of an angry God, the Sermon on the Mount confronts the external religiosity of a group of people who had thought and had been taught that as long as they externally adhered to certain traditions and certain religious customs and their behavior was more or less good, then their standing before God was all set. And the Lord Jesus directly confronts and rebukes that kind of external legalism, that religious hypocrisy, that externalism that looks so good on the outside, but on the inside remains unconverted and corrupt. I also will confess that I take some heart in the fact that Jonathan Edwards was a guest preacher when he took upon himself to preach such a direct and confrontive topic, the topic of the desperate need for every listener to have truly come to Christ and to leave behind the external accolades of a hypocritical self-righteousness that maybe looks good but actually remains apart from Christ. The climax of this sermon is in Matthew chapter 7, and really as we think about the Sermon on the Mount, I want to summarize Jesus' approach to his audience on that day by talking about the context as we just briefly recap what he talks about in Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6 and then really focus on his conclusion to this sermon. The conclusion of a sermon is the climax of the sermon. A sermon that is well prepared, the conclusion's not just tacked on. It's a it's the the climactic call to action from the heart and substance of what's been said before it. The conclusion is the climax, and I find it fascinating that in the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever preached, we have really the greatest conclusion, and that conclusion ends with a wise man and a foolish man and, of course, that Sunday school song representing it. But I want to give the lead up to it in chapters 5 and 6. And then in chapter 7, we're going to look at the four contrasts that Jesus articulates as he distinguishes between those who think they are good when they are not and those who know they are not good and therefore cry out to God for mercy. The distinction between the self-righteous who are self-deceived and those who have a true righteousness that comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll begin by talking a little bit just about the context of this message, and then we'll focus in on the conclusion in chapter seven. The Sermon on the Mount is well known, and I'm confident that I am working through chapters that you are very much familiar with in Matthew 6 and Matthew five and six and seven. Matthew chapter 5 begins, of course, with the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes sometimes, I think, are treated even in sort of evangelical lees. They can be treated almost as spiritual platitudes, but that is nothing at all as to what they really are in their substance. Jesus begins by confronting the self-righteous heart attitude that thinks it's good because of what it does— And what it can offer to God in terms of here are the legalistic traditions that I have kept, here are the rabbinic rules that I have followed, here are the ways that externally I have been good. Look at my spiritual resume. Much like Paul in Philippians 3, who was like, hey, when it comes to a spiritual resume, I had a really good one. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees. As to the law, blameless. Like you look at my report card, it was all A's. But, as Paul recognizes in Philippians 3, that kind of self-righteousness is like filthy rags in the eyes of a holy God. It doesn't meet His standard. It falls far short of His glory. Paul in Philippians 3 says it was like rubbish. It was like dung. What we need is a righteousness not derived from the law, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And Jesus makes that point explicit In Matthew 5 and 6, the Beatitudes is all about blessing, blessedness for those who are not proud in spirit, but those who are humble in spirit, those who are contrite of heart, those who mourn over their sin, like the tax collector in Luke 18, who cried out to God for mercy, recognizing there was nothing worthy in him. Those who hunger and thirst for a true righteousness, not a righteousness that they create on their own, but a righteousness that's given to them as a gift from God, a righteousness that comes only through faith in Christ. So Jesus begins by identifying these heart attitudes that are completely contrary to the self-righteous pride that so many in his audience would have had, certainly the self-righteous pride that characterized the scribes and the Pharisees, which is why in chapter 5, verse 20, he can say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That would have been shocking to that original audience. The scribes and the Pharisees were the most spiritual people they knew. This is the spiritually elite, and Jesus is saying, Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, how is that possible? Well, it's only possible if your righteousness is of a completely different character than the external legalism of the self-righteous. It has to be something that starts with the heart, mourning over your sin, confessing your unworthiness in humility, crying out for a true righteousness that is only given to those who seek God in humility. Jesus goes on in Matthew chapter 5 to... Really obliterate the notions of, again, this externalism that was so common in first century Judaism. He talks about the fact that true righteousness is that which comes from a heart that has been transformed. And so they had been taught well, you can hate your brother as long as you don't murder. You can lust as long as you don't commit adultery. You can lie as long as you don't break a formal oath. And Jesus obliterates those notions one by one. And he teaches the fact that true religion is about the heart. And those who hate have committed murder in their heart. And those who lust have committed adultery in their heart. And those who lie have broken the law of God in its truest sense. Uh, Jesus even condemns them for thinking that they could hate their enemies as long as they loved their friends. Again, He's just attacking the bankruptcy of this false religious system. And then He really lays down the hammer in verse 48 of chapter 5. If the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, if that was not itself uh, an amazing standard to obliterate in the minds of that audience, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus just says it as clearly as it can be said, that you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And that really is the standard, right? You must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. In the Sunday school hour, we talked a little bit about Martin Luther, of course, the famous 16th century German reformer. It was in the year 1505 that he was walking home from law school and he got caught in a thunderstorm. It's July of 1505, and as a bolt of lightning struck the ground nearby where he was walking, you can imagine the drama and fearfulness of that experience. Luther was so freaked out that he cried out typical 16th century Roman Catholic fashion, not to God, but to his patron saint, Saint Anne, Saint Anne, spare me and I will become a monk. True to his word, 21 days later, he joined a monastery there in Erfurt, modern-day Germany, an Augustinian monastery. It was the fear of death that had prompted him to join the monastery. It was the fear of God's wrath that consumed him for the next decade of his life. And in typical, again, 16th-century Roman Catholic fashion, Luther was under the impression that he had to earn his own righteousness. He had to appease God's wrath through his own righteousness, his own self-righteousness. And he found it to be an incredibly frustrating enterprise. He would go long periods of time without eating, so much so that he damaged his health for the rest of his life. He would lay on the cold stone floor of the German monastery in the middle of the winter without any blankets, nearly freezing to death, thinking that by doing that, he was somehow atoning for his own sin. He would go to the confessor there at the monastery so frequently that the confessor kept telling him, don't come back until you commit a really big sin. In fact, this is, this is just for free, but the confessor's name was a guy, uh, Johann von Staupitz. And I, I tell my students in seminary, you can remember his name because he kept telling Luther to Staupitz. <laughs> staupitz, stop coming back. This is getting annoying. You're waking me up all hours of the night confessing every little petty sin. Commit a big sin and then we'll talk. Luther, in his quest to assuage his own guilt and the burden of God's wrath that he felt upon his heart, he's, he said later, "I came to hate the phrase, The righteousness of God, whenever I saw it in Scripture, because I only saw in that phrase my own condemnation." And, and Matthew 548. It is that standard, right? If you are to enter the kingdom of God, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And in a system of works righteousness, all Luther could see was his imperfection against God's perfect standard. It was about a decade later probably in around 1515, that as Luther was lecturing through the book of Psalms and then the book of Romans and a little bit after that the book of Galatians, that he came to understand that the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel is not only the righteous standard of God, which is perfection, but it is also the righteous provision of God through Christ, whereby the sinner clothed in the righteousness of Christ meets the standard, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ did for us. And of course, then when Luther discovered the gospel of grace, he began to preach that gospel. And the rest, as I find myself saying a lot, is history but what a countercultural message for this first century audience that thought they were good with god because they had done enough and jesus says no 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 even the scribes and pharisees haven't done enough because the standard is perfection and you fall short of the standard that theme continues into matthew chapter 6 where jesus continues to confront the hypocrisy of the religious leaders Those who would pray in public, not because they're really praying, but because they want the accolades of men. And those who would fast in public, not because they're interested in the spiritual side of what fasting can bring, but instead they want the accolades of men. And their hopes are in the things of this world. And so they put their treasures not in heaven, but in the things of this earth. And Jesus says, those who are true believers, your treasure is in heaven. You're not to be anxious but for the hypocrite, there's great anxiety because their hope is in the here and the now. And as Jesus continues to draw that, contra- uh, that contrast, it comes into chapter 7. And in chapter 7, he directly confronts the religious hypocrite for judging his brother when he himself stands condemned. And then in verses 7 to 12, Jesus ends the, the main part of his sermon By appealing to those who are hungering and thirsting for that true righteousness, a righteousness which is not theirs through the law, but a righteousness which comes only through Him. And He says you can have that true righteousness if you would seek for it. You will find it because God is a good God who gives good gifts to those who seek Him in genuine sincerity. It's then in chapter 7, verse 13, that our Lord begins His conclusion to this epic sermon that is confronting the false security of the religious hypocrites of His day. I'm reminded of sort of that famous question from the Evangelism Explosion material. Uh, The famous question is one that perhaps you've used before in evangelistic conversations, If you were to stand before God, even this day, and He were to ask you, Why should I let you into my heaven? What answer would you give? For a typical first century follower of Judaism, the answer would have been something along the lines of, Well, I keep the law, and I'm externally good. I'm blameless in terms of my external conduct and I follow the rituals and traditions of our forefathers, and I I listen to the rabbis. It would have been very much like Paul in Philippians 3. In our own day, you ask that question to somebody, and they often say it like this, well, I'm a good person. I think God knows that I'm a good person, certainly a good person compared to all the people who are worse than me, sort of a relativistic moral standard. And the point of Jesus' message to his first century audience and the point of this sermon to us today is that no one, no one will enter the kingdom of heaven on the basis of his or her own self-righteousness. Again, that self-righteousness is like filthy rags in the eyes of a holy God. We need a righteousness that is not from us, a righteousness that comes from the only one who was ever perfect, the Lord Jesus Christ, and clothed in His righteousness, we gain access to that which we do not deserve, but are given by God's grace. The only right answer to the question, why should I let you into my heaven, is because of what your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, did on my behalf. So we come then to the conclusion, to the climax of this great message, the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus concludes this sermon by giving a series of four contrasts, a series of four contrasts, and we're going to organize our thoughts along these four contrasts this morning. It begins in verses 13 and 14 with two contrasting gates two contrasting ways or paths or roads that lead to two contrasting gates. Verse 13, "'Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it.'" Two, two paths, two roads, each of which leads to two different gates. I love how the Lord Jesus takes really every person who's ever lived and puts them in one of two categories. Every every religion that has ever been created is put in one of two categories. There is the category of human achievement, which encompasses anyone and everyone who thinks that they're going to get into heaven on the basis of their own goodness. Well, I go to church, and I hang out with Christian people, and I'm a relatively good person. All of that is contrasted with the road of divine accomplishment, where the few who find it recognize the bankruptcy of their own self-righteousness and rely entirely on the work of Christ on their behalf. And what is the way? Is the way not a person? The Lord Jesus Christ, right? John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And is the door not a person? The Lord Jesus Christ, John 10, verse 9, I am the door. Anyone who enters through me will be saved. So true religion is not a system. True religion is a person. And to understand that is to understand that there's nothing worthy in me, there's nothing good in me that merits eternal life. I come like, the again, the tax collector in Luke 18, crying out for mercy and recognizing that my own righteous deeds are, are nothing in the sight of a holy God. And it is only because of His grace through Christ that I will ever enter into his eternal rest. I'm reminded of the Puritan Richard Baxter who wrote a book called The Saint's Everlasting Rest. He got really sick, thought he was going to die. If you're a Puritan, you get sick, you think you're going to die. What do you do? You write a book. And that's what Richard Baxter did, uh, Saint's Everlasting Rest. It's this wonderful book about the hope of heaven. And in that book, Baxter points out, he says, on the floors of hell, Write the word, deserved. But on the gates of heaven, write the words, the free gift. Right? The, the door is Christ, and the way is Christ, and those who will find eternal life find it only through Christ. He is the way, and He is the door. And you're not getting through the door on the basis of any of your self-righteous baggage that you bring along. I know it's not a perfect illustration, but I think of the analogy of going through airport security whenever I think of the door, the narrow gate. TSA does a pretty good job of making sure that nobody gets through with anything they're not supposed to get through with. I remember when, again, our kids were not teenagers, but they were more much smaller. We had so much gear that we were trying to get through airport security. There was a time in our lives when we had two double strollers, four kids, two double strollers, and all of the car seats and booster seats and just all the stuff that comes with that. And I remember thinking, if something is less than 500 miles away, we will drive just so that I do not have to go through airport security with all of this stuff. The narrow gate is kind of like going through airport security. And if you think you're going to get through on the basis of this spiritual resume of all of this good stuff. Look at all the verses I memorized. Look at all the church services I attended. Look at all of the things that I did. That external righteousness is going to get flagged. Because salvation is only found for those who leave all of that behind and recognize that the only thing that merits anything in the eyes of God is the righteousness that He provides through Christ. The way is Christ. The door is Christ. Only through Him can we have eternal life. Well, Jesus continues in verses 15 to 20 by talking about two contrasting trees. So, two contrasting gates and then two contrasting trees. And here he really exposes the false teaching of the false teachers, the false prophets as he calls them. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, figs from thistles, so every good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You will know them by their fruits. And so here again, we have a contrast. The contrast now is looking at the external fruit that is produced, but really the intention here is looking at the heart. Because fruit is an evidence of what's happening on the inside. And Jesus in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is emphasizing true heart religion. And those who have been transformed by God's grace, they bear good fruit because good fruit is the inevitable evidence and outcome of a life that's been transformed by grace. But the hypocritical, external, legalistic attempts To earn God's favor, even though those things may at times appear noble and good to us, in the eyes of God they are despicable fruit. And Jesus here contrasts then the bad fruit of the false teachers with the good fruit of those who have been genuinely changed from the inside out. Brings us to a third contrast in verses 21 to 23. And I want to spend just a little bit more time on this contrast. We have two contrasting gates, two contrasting trees, and now two contrasting destinies. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Just want to point out quickly the characteristics of the false believers who are presented in this again, very sobering section. This is perhaps one of the most, if not the most sobering warning in all of the New Testament. You can see why I took some solace in the fact that Jonathan Edwards was a guest preacher when he preached these same kind of truths all the way back in 1741. These false believers are characterized by an empty claim, right? In verse 21, they say, Lord, Lord, but that profession is empty. It's baseless. It's bankrupt. And they're characterized, secondly, in verse 22, by their reliance on external conduct. And I think, again, this is the entire point of the Sermon on the Mount. Why do these people think that they should be let into heaven? Look at what we did. And in first century Judaism, the, those who were considered prophets, and those who were at least claiming to be exorcists, and those who perhaps could do things that the people thought were miraculous, this was the, the highest level of spiritual credential. And Jesus is saying those external things, no matter how noble they may appear, on a human level, those things contribute nothing to your actual standing before God. So these false professors, they come with their empty claim of Lord, Lord, and their, their reliance on external conduct. Look at all that we did. And yet what is the result? Verse 23, it's eternal condemnation because Jesus says to them, I never knew you. And the irony here is that they think they've done so good at keeping the law, and Jesus condemns them for their lawlessness. Because man looks at the external appearance, but God looks at the heart. And I've noted the fact that there are contrasts in these verses, right? You have two contrasting gates, and it's explicit, the contrast in verses 13 and 14, and two contrasting trees, and it's explicit, the contrast in the following verses. Here in these verses, 21 to 23, the contrast is more implicit, but the contrast is still there. It's a contrast with those false believers who are relying on their own goodness to get them into heaven, with the true believers... The true believers are characterized, verse 21, as those who do the will of the Father. You say, what is that? Doesn't That sounds like it's some sort of work we're supposed to do. Is Jesus implying that we're supposed to do some sort of work to get into heaven? The answer is no. In fact, in John chapter 6 verse 40, one of the few other places where Jesus uses the same phrase of the will of my father, he makes it very explicit what the will of the Father is. He says this, "For this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day." What is the will of the Father? The will of the Father is to believe in the Son. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father by believing in me will enter. True believers then in verse 22 are characterized not by resting in their own external conduct, but by resting in the work of Christ. They recognize that they've fallen short of God's glory. They rest in the righteousness not of their own derived from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. They rejoice in the great exchange of 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so we see the contrast between the false believers who are saying, look at all the stuff we did, and the true believers who are saying, we're resting entirely on what you've done on our behalf. And then we see in verse 22 that the eternal condemnation of the false professors is contrasted with true believers who recognize the way to heaven, right? So true believers are those who do the will of the Father, and who rest in the work of Christ, and then who know the true way to heaven. And we're reminded again that the way to heaven is not a system. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not a series of behavior modifications. The way to heaven is through faith in Christ. It is a saving relationship with Him. Right? I quoted this verse earlier, but John fourteen six, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And so when Jesus says to the false believers, I never knew you, the implication is that to true believers, the answer is, I do know you. And is that not the essence of eternal life, right? John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the Father, and the one whom you have sent, the Son, Eternal life begins with a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and it continues for all of eternity in the joy and wonder of knowing Him forever and ever and worshiping and delighting in Him as a result. And so these two contrasting destinies then are so clearly laid out by our Lord, the empty claims and the external conduct and the eternal condemnation of the false professor, is contrasted with those who do the will of the Father, which is to believe in the Son, and who rely on the work of Christ, that He accomplished it all on our behalf, and who recognize the way of salvation, which is to know Jesus Christ. And as Jonathan Edwards challenged his audience 280 years ago, my challenge to you this morning is, Really, 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine your own heart. Is your standing before God even today on the basis of what you have done or on the basis of what He has done on your behalf? It's the difference between self-righteousness and true righteousness. It's the difference between a system that is bankrupt and that which truly saves. And all of that then leads us to our fourth and final contrast, which is the contrast that's represented, of course, by that famous children's song, The Wise Man Built His House Upon the Rock, because this is Jesus' closing illustration. This is the closing illustration in the best conclusion ever (laughs) constructed, in the best sermon ever preached by the best preacher who ever preached. Verses 24 to 27, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine... And acts on them, he may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Two houses to, in this case, illustrations of an external adherence to religion, right? The Pharisees looked pretty good on the outside. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They looked clean on the outside, but on the inside, they were full of dead, man's, uh, dead men's bones. And the illustration here is that externally, both systems, both individuals may look somewhat similar. Like they both go to church, and they're both nice. They're both good people. In a first-century context, they, they both adhered to the law of Moses… So the, the houses, the external superstructure of that religious system working itself out in real life, they, they may look somewhat similar, and they may both look pretty good. In fact, the self-righteous, because they're basing their eternity on that self-righteousness, their external conformity to some religious system may even look more impressive. But Jesus' point here is... No matter how good the building looks, if it's built on a faulty foundation, it will not withstand the storm of God's justice. I remember one time, this was many years ago, my wife and I were looking at a house. Uh, We were considering purchasing a house, and... We were actually pretty interested in this particular neighborhood until we went online and discovered that there was a class action lawsuit against the builder because the foundations of the houses that were built in this community were slipping. And we went back, and after learning that, we looked at one of the houses, and we noticed that there were some massive cracks in (laughs) the driveway. We were like, you know what, I don't think we want to buy this house. It looked fine, except the foundation was faulty. And of course, we're familiar with communities that sometimes in devastating landslides or in other things, the foundation gets washed away. Uh, Sometimes even mansions in Malibu are built too close to the cliff and they fall because the foundation gives. Who wants to live in a fancy house knowing that the foundation is no good? Well, no one. Jesus' point here is obviously clear. If you build your life on Christ, then when the winds and the rain and the storm of God's judgment comes upon you, you will be fine because you are clothed in Him. You will have been like the wise man who built his house upon the rock able to withstand the judgment of God. By contrast, if you build your life on the shifting sands of human achievement and your own goodness and and your own external conformity to some sort of self-righteous standard, no matter how good you may seem and no matter how impressive your religious resume, when you stand before God and the wind and the rain of his judgment come against your little spiritual edifice, it will collapse. And the house on the sand went splat. And the warning of this text is a warning again That's especially appropriate to those who, like myself, grew up in a religious environment where the temptation to gravitate towards some sort of self-righteous hypocrisy can be a very real temptation. And what a reminder and a warning this is for us that true religion, true salvation To be right with God is to build your life on the words of Christ and the work of Christ, because only Christ is a foundation that saves. In that famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, The part that they never put in the American literature textbooks is the part that Jonathan Edwards eventually got to. They always put the spider over the flame part because it's dramatic. But the part they leave out is the part that Edwards got to where he urged his congregation that day in Enfield, Connecticut, to flee to Christ, to turn to Christ, that the judgment of God that awaits all those who are outside of Christ, should motivate us to look to Christ and flee to Him and find our refuge in Him. He is that safe harbor. He is that firm foundation. That was Jesus' point when He preached this sermon. Two gates, Jesus is the narrow way. Two trees, Jesus is the one that gives life to the tree that bears good fruit. Two destinies to know Christ and for Him to know you is the only way into His kingdom. And and two foundations, the sand of self-achievement and the rock of divine accomplishment because of what God did through Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. In fact, many of you were in the choir at the conference. Well done. But it's a good and helpful reminder for us to always remember that the only entry into the kingdom of heaven is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And when we look to Him, when we look to Him and build our life upon Him, we are forgiven, we are justified, and we're given the hope of an eternity spent in His presence. In the words of Dr. Carl Hargrove, amen? amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word, the, the reminder that salvation is only through your Son. As Peter said, there is salvation in no other name under heaven except the name of Jesus Christ. Father, we don't want to be self-deceived. We don't want to be those who are relying on our own self-effort. We recognize the bankruptcy of our own righteousness, that it is filthy rags in your sight, and that salvation is only available because of what your Son, the Lord Jesus, did on our behalf. We rejoice. We rejoice in Him and in His work. We look forward to the day when we will surround His throne and sing His praise. We seek to give Him all of the glory and to be pleasing to Him as our Lord and Savior. And we pray these things in His name today. Amen.